0: Hello out there, welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we take a deep look at opportunity in America today, and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski, I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Research is increasingly showing that housing is a foundation for virtually everything. It predicts what kind of neighborhood you'll grow up in, the quality of school you'll attend, your access to transportation and amenities... Housing shapes segregation patterns, the crime levels of your surroundings, job opportunities, exposure to certain health risks, your friends, and social networks. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, and yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. Well, I'm extremely uh, excited for this episode. We're talking to David Williams, the policy director of Opportunity Insights, and they are uh, doing some of the coolest work in the country, if you ask me. Uh, Opportunity Insights is based at Harvard. It's directed by world-renowned economist Raj Chetty, alongside co-directors John Friedman of Brown University and Nathaniel Hedron at Uh, Harvard. It's basically a team of researchers and policy analysts that look at opportunity in America and how you develop solutions that will lift people out of poverty and achieve better life outcomes. David is the policy director of Opportunity Insights, and I think his presence is really key. It makes sure that the institute goes beyond uh, research alone, and so the new policy team led by David, their job is to take all the research that's being done and and translate it into policy. And they'll work directly with policymakers and practitioners in cities. Uh, They already have policy partnerships in uh, Charlotte, Seattle, Minneapolis, and Detroit. And they're working on plans for more efforts in other cities. Uh, before he joined Opportunity Insight, uh, Insights, David served as a senior advisor to the mayor of Detroit, Mike Dugan. Uh, David was a member of the mayor's economic development team. He managed large-scale real estate and community revitalization projects, neighborhood planning initiatives, uh, and all sorts of policies related to economic mobility, land use, equitable development. He got his JD from Harvard Law School, where he was the president of the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, focused a lot on anti-foreclosure and anti-eviction law. And then after law school, he was at a Boston law firm that specializes in affordable housing and community development. So for a podcast that looks at the intersections of housing policy, he's really a a perfect guest. So David, uh, welcome. We're really glad to have you on the podcast.
1: I'm very happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So, so my first question is: Now that the Red Sox have won the the World Series, and you're based out of Boston, is anybody back at work yet? or Are they still celebrating?
1: <laughs> you know, there are there are a few folks here. There are a few folks. Right. They uh, do they do look a little bit tired. But also, I have to admit, you know, I am. A diehard Detroit sports fan, so I try and get out of Boston whenever we're we're close to any of these um, championship moments.
0: Ah, well, you, you told me that you were traveling the past couple days, uh, and the, the, the parade was yesterday, I think. So you timed it perfectly.
1: Weird coincidence. Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. Maybe it wasn't coincidence at all, but that's uh, perhaps that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, good stuff. All right, so so let's um let's start with um, the American dream. Right. And I think your, your organization, if you kind of, if I had to put it in one sentence, and I think you have this on, on the website as well, it's about reviving the American dream. And uh, the foundation of the American dream, of course, is economic mobility, right? Climbing up the income ladder, doing better than your parents did. Um, and what we're seeing, though, is that the dream is fading. Uh, for kids that were born in 1940, they had a 90% chance of doing better than their parents today it's about a 50% chance we know that this is happening the you know the research is is pretty clear that you all have done do we know why this is happening
1: yeah no so i think kind of you know when we look at at that research the concept of the american dream and you know potentially that dream really you know having having faded over the past 50 years you know what we're seeing is that you know one there are Lower growth rates in this country, but I think almost more importantly, there's greater inequality, right? So there's yeah. a larger fraction of the growth is really kind of going to a small number of of, of, of high income earners, right? And, and so, you know, even if, you know, we did start to see, you know, higher growth that we did see, you know, mid century in the, in the 1900s, you know, that wouldn't kind of really, you know, that wouldn't decrease the, the, those gaps and that wouldn't really kind of, you know, increase that idea of the American dream without, you know, more of that shared pro- prosperity.
0: Yeah, and um, I think we're seeing, you know, it, it wasn't always the case, right? I mean, there was a period of time, particularly post-World War II, where we saw wages um, generally increasing equally across classes, and now there's mm-hmm. a huge discrepancy. This is certainly the one of the mega challenges of our time, is how we uh, revive the American dream. So. What personally, before we get into all the specifics, I'm curious what personally motivates you to do this work?
1: Yeah, no. So, you know, so I grew up in the Detroit area um, and then, you know, after Mm -hmm. going to college and law school and kind of practicing law for for several years on the the East Coast, you know, know, I decided to move back home, right? Because I had a background in housing and economic Mm -hmm. development. I figured, you know, being from Detroit, you know, what better place to really try and have an impact, one, on your hometown, but I think you know, to a place that was really kind of struggling in a deep way with some of these issues. Um, And so, you know, I worked for Mayor Duggan um, during his his first term. And, you know, one, it was just like really getting city services back, really kind of rebuilding trust in local government. And then two, and what I was largely involved with was, you know, given a city that had lost, you know, two thirds of its population, almost two million people living there in the 1950s to, you know, less than 700,000. Um, yeah. in recent years. And, you know, a place that you know, had gone through the foreclosure crisis where, you know, like our city and land bank own a hundred thousand kind of vacant parcels wow. and properties, um, wow. you know, like a really like tremendous um, yeah. um, um issue. So kind of you know, our question was, you know, how do you really physically rebuild the infrastructure of a city that has gone through that kind of, of of trauma, you know, and I think you know we, you know, took a data-driven approach and really tried to be thoughtful and strategic in saying, you know, hey, you know, you know, how do we layer these different these different interventions and resources in a way that kind of can kind of you know rebuild our city in a sustainable fashion? And so I think you know we're you know building new streetscapes, building new parks, new retail amenities, rehabbing vacant buildings, and doing it in targeted places to start. I think in 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 a way that we felt was you know. A really kind of holistic and thoughtful a- approach. But I think yeah. the question that I think oftentimes kind of nagged me and my colleagues was, you know, as we're helping rebuild the, these neighborhoods, you know, how do we ensure that the folks who've lived there for a long time, right, the folks who are most vulnerable, oftentimes kind of low-income folks and people of color, you know, how do we make sure that, you know, they're benefiting, that we're kind of positively changing their life outcomes as these neighborhoods are getting better? And I think just, you know, given the state of the data and the research, like, you know, we weren't able to kind of guarantee those outcomes. And I think that was something that, you know, I thought we were doing great work, but, you know, there was still a gap between making sure that that physical change was also accompanied by kind of those better life outcomes for those residents that we cared about most.
0: Yeah, well said. And so so that leads you, of course, to the work that you're doing now, which is looking at those those economic mobility questions and making sure that uh, progress is spread more equitably. So uh, talk a little bit about your uh, new role at Opportunity Insights.
1: Exactly. You know, um, so, you know, as you mentioned in, in your very kind intro, um, I serve as the new policy director here. And i um, uh-huh. kind of, you know, this policy team Within Opportunity Insights is about kind of four or five months old, and you know mm-hmm. it is kind of our role to you know figure out how do we translate all this really innovative research, all this interesting data into real change on the ground yeah. a- across the the country, um, and I, and I think kind of one thing that you know actually it excites me almost more than that is, you know, it isn't just about taking the research and turning it into policy, but really listening to local practitioners, local policymakers and kind of figuring out, you know, what are the questions that they want to have answered and using mm-hmm. that to actually inform the research agenda to be even more helpful to kind of, to kind of folks working on the, on the ground in cities, counties, you know, with housing authorities and colleges and kind of all the institutions that have the ability to impact kids' lives.
0: Yeah. And how is the organization structured? So there's a policy team, but tell us about kind of the the broader organizational structure that you all have.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean so basically it had kind of served as kind of the umbrella group for the research of Raj John and Nathan, right? So kind yeah. of them working on these issues of economic opportunity and mobility, you know, for 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 the past 10 years. And I think, you know, they had been getting so many requests for help from people who like, you know, were really engaged with the research and and interested in it but you know didn't really know how to you know turn it into you know policy on the ground and so you know we had basically a relaunch this 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 fall and kind of created this new policy team that i'm leading and i have you know a staff of kind of six folks you know it's almost like you know we basically kind of serve as um a small consulting firm that gets to leverage all this great research um but i think you know part of it is it's also a bit of an experiment right you know really kind of figuring out how do you translate the research to practice gap with an organization that, you know, again, both has the research side and the policy side, but it's really kind of like working in, in tandem to really just kind of have as much impact and be as helpful as possible.
0: Yeah, it's it's so important to bridge that gap between academia and practitioners, and it's so funny. I mean, I was in a, in a prior life before before housing, I uh, focused a lot on foreign policy issues, mm-hmm. and it was the same sort of debate there of you have a gap between uh, academia and the actual practitioners, and so uh, organizations like like yours that are working to bridge the gap, I think, are exactly what's what's needed. Um, so this is, uh, you know, as you know, this is a podcast about the intersections of affordable housing and other sectors such mm-hmm. as education, economic mobility, of course, healthcare, hunger, um, and there, there's so much to discuss when it mm-hmm. comes to the American dream. But I want to try to uh, focus our time on uh, on housing. And at the campaign, uh, we often talk about the the four dimensions of housing. Uh, which are uh, quality, stability, affordability, and location. And so when we talk about, you know, quality, it's things like, you know, are there pests in the home? Uh, And that's connected to asthma, Uh, lead being connected to developmental delays, Uh, issues related to heat in your house, the indoor temperature, the allergens in the carpet. Uh, If you have inadequate lighting, it could lead to injury. Uh, When we talk about stability, we talk about, you know, if you're moving twice per year, you're at risk of adverse health. When you're doubled up with another family, when you're cramped, Uh, homelessness is when the stability situation is the worst. Um, when we talk about affordability, we talk about the, the question of how much are you paying toward rent. Uh, when you're paying a lot of your take-home income on rent, you have little left over for other necessities like medications and food and transportation and uh, you know getting your kid enrolled in extracurricular activities. You might avoid the doctor because you're afraid of costs. And then finally, there's the location question. Where is housing located, right? Is your home located in a neighborhood of opportunity? Does that neighborhood have access to jobs and transit and quality schools and resources and amenities and doctor's offices and grocery stores so that you can buy healthy food? And I would say, I think, that uh, the, the Chetty research, the research of Opportunity Insights has focused primarily on the location aspect, right? The neighborhood, uh, where you live matters, the block you live on matters. uh, And and one of the central findings is that the neighborhoods in which children grow up uh, is has a big causal impact on whether they'll climb the income ladder as adults. And so for affordable housing advocates, the research has really influenced our conversation. Where you put affordable housing matters a heck of a lot, right? It's not just about the proliferation of more affordable units. It's paying attention to where those affordable units are located. And historically, we haven't done the best job of locating affordable housing in high opportunity areas too often. We've cited affordable housing in areas that are segregated and concentrated in poverty. And there, you know, we could do a whole podcast about the reasons for that. Not in my backyard attitudes, the land costs in opportunity areas are more expensive, things like that. But the Chetty research I think has really put The location issue on the radar of housing advocates in really new ways. uh, You have to think about the neighborhood that housing is in. So Mm -hmm. with that in mind, I really want to focus on the location issue and talk about the research. So one of the key findings um, that you all talk about is that, you know, children who grow up just a few miles apart, Right? They're they're born into families with the same incomes. They just grow up a few miles apart. They can have very different life outcomes. Explain mm-hmm. that. Explain that to our listeners. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, no, I think, you know, you know, our, our biggest finding, right, is that neighborhoods matter, which I think, you know, to most people in this space is not going to be shocking. But I think to us it was just interesting, like how important neighborhoods matter and, and also kind of how hyper local. Neighborhoods are, and I think yeah. it really speaks to kind of this exposure effect, right? So you know, so when kids are growing up in a certain place on a certain block, there is something about kind of who they're growing up around, what they see, and those experiences that they're exposed to that are extremely important, right? And so, and that and that exposure is different a mile away, and we can really see it through those numbers. And when kind of you know Rajiv and Nathan are kind of running all the, all the different correlates, you know, really seeing that 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 exposure effect is extremely impactful kind of in the direct proximity of where they're living and then kind of you know and like falls off like within a half mile um so you really see that you know that actually that the the atmosphere the cohesion of the place they grow up is just super important
0: yeah it's like what what real estate agents have been saying forever location 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 they had no idea how right they were right and 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 it's and it's yeah it's within a half mile radius so there's Mm -hmm. um I mean, obviously, when, when you talk about exposure effects, there's a lot of different dynamics going on there. There's, um, and I think in earlier research um, uh, that you all conducted, talked about you know less residential segregation, the income levels of a neighborhood, the social capital of a neighborhood, the school quality. There's a lot of, a lot of factors going on. Do we know what it is about the neighborhood that makes it stronger or weaker,
1: Mm-hmm. So you know, I do think that we know there are some of those kind of larger factors that you touch on that seem yeah. to you know you know highly correlate to better neighborhoods. Um, but I think kind of one thing that you know I found super interesting, especially kind of coming from you know a mayor's office, was there there's there's two things right. And so one thing we saw is that kind of like just having jobs in a city or nearby doesn't necessarily translate to economic opportunity, especially mm-hmm. for low income kids, right? Yeah. But what we do see though is actually like the number of employed people in a neighborhood has an impact on all those kids who grew up in in that place. So I think there's something about like you know having role models and kind of like, seeing examples of like, you know, actually getting into the job market and earning, you know, a living. I think like that's really important um for neighbors. And I think secondly, you know, obviously it's important, especially for young black black men, to have kind of like father figures, you know, in their household. But what we're seeing is that not just for individual homes, but just like the proportion of kind of like you know two parent households and having men in the neighborhood impacts all the kids who are growing up in that in that place. So again, I think there's this question of kind of like role models and kind of that neighborhood cohesion element, which, you know, I think you know, is not as obvious as some of these more kind of tangible, observable factors, right? And so, I think there's something about kind of like neighborhood cohesion, networks, and and, and role models that, you know, I think intuitively kind of kind of make sense that those things are important. But you know, now that we can see that you know those actually drive kind of long term outcomes and the lifetime earnings of the kids who grow up there, I yeah. think kind of really kind of makes like refocus on some of these issues.
0: Yeah, that's a, a really important point. I want to uh, drill down into that a little bit. Um, and uh, David Lionheart with uh, the New York Times, I think, highlighted this recently, um, that there's a, a really big factor around um, the single-parent households, right? And, and children mm-hmm. who grow up in neighborhoods with fewer two-parent families actually do much worse. And his point mm-hmm. Is that the left, and by the way, he's a he's a liberal? Uh, his point is that you know the left has too often dismissed the importance of family structure, which you've alluded to earlier. when you uh, the data are clear that when you have more two parent homes in a neighborhood, um, there's benefits, right? I mean, not mm-hmm. only do you have two incomes instead of one in the household, but adults have more time to be involved in community affairs and there's more mentoring. So how how do we think about this? I mean, is this an issue that perhaps we haven't been paying enough attention to?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a great question, right? And I think kind of the politics behind it are interesting. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, one you know, one thing that I actually hope is that, you know, again, we use data to help drive the conversation, right? So, yeah. you know, you know, I think we all have preconceived notions about, you know, what might be some of the best solutions to these issues. And I think, you know, the evidence, hopefully, I think kind of helps us challenge some of those preconceived notions, right? And because I do think yeah. that, you know, again, like this is something that, you know, maybe some folks on on, on the left maybe don't want to focus on two-parent households and issues of marriage. But I think, you know, when we do see that it is an issue and kind of has a real impact, we have to we have to think about it, right? Um, I mean, I think, you know, yeah. one other kind of policy space that this might have impact on is thinking about criminal justice, right? And so, you know, when you're mm-hmm. in, you know, a lot of like low-income neighborhoods that have, you know, a lot of like African-American and Hispanic families, you know, there mm-hmm. are a disproportionate of men who are involved in the criminal justice system, right? And I think that takes yeah. a lot of men out of those communities. And I, and I think we all understand that, you know, obviously it probably isn't good if you're a young black kid growing up and, and and your dad is in jail. But I think when we think about, like, those men being in jail and out of their communities, it might actually have ramifications beyond the individual families that impact those entire communities. So, so I think, like, yeah. there are kind of many different policy implications for facts like that. And I think it kind of, you know, can help raise them um, to the forefront.
0: Yeah. Great point. Yeah. I mean, criminal justice disparities are not just impacting the individuals. They can have potentially really negative impacts on the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah. I want to I go back and hit on the, the jobs piece. Um, and you, I think you raise a really important point. It, it challenges, again, I think it challenges some conventional wisdom that, jobs aren't the end-all be-all, that, you know, the conventional wisdom was, well, just more jobs will fix the problems associated mm-hmm. with poverty. But one of the findings that you all have is that more jobs might not necessarily be associated with all those things. Can you flesh that out a little bit more for us?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so right now, one of our first policy engagements is with the um, city of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County. And so, you know, you know, actually, based on some of our research from about three years ago, you know, according to certain metrics we found that you know charlotte among the top 50 metros in the in the country actually had some of the lowest opportunity for their low-income residents and i think yeah. you know that that was pretty counterintuitive right because you know charlotte has been growing tremendously over the past 10 20 30 years lots of new jobs lots of development but i think we're starting to to see that you know that growth that development doesn't again necessarily translate to opportunities for the low income kids who grow up there. And, yeah. but the, the the great thing though is that that community, you know, didn't see those findings and dismiss them, right? You know, they said, hey, you know, there yeah. are lots of good things happening in Charlotte, but we need to be better for our low income kids. So actually, led by um, Brian Collier and the Foundation for the Carolinas, they created the Leading on Opportunity Task Force, which really kind of like brought together the city government, county government, local corporate community, local foundations to really attack this issue of economic opportunity. So they've been working on this for the past two or three years now, and now we're kind of officially engaged with them to help them kind of turn that research and some of their initial findings into actionable policy. Um, but I think, though, that, again, it, it served as a wake-up call, right? So I think, you know, places like yeah. Charlotte, places like Atlanta and some other cities in in the southeast that, that have been you know, booming, right. You know, job growth is off the, the, the charts, yeah. you know, they are oftentimes some of the lowest opportunity places for the low income kids. And so, you know, I think our hope is that, you know, numbers like that findings, like that kind of, you know, help actually galvanize community into action. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, a lot of parallels um, from my time in, in Dallas, you know, mm. the DFW area, similar thing, just tremendous growth and, and just growth, 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 growth. And yet when you look at the inclusivity of the growth, it's not anywhere where it needs to be. There's a exactly. huge gap. Um, yeah, really important point is that it's not just growth. It's the inclusivity of that growth. I want to transition a little bit and talk about race. Um you you have to talk about race in this conversation. Um, and one of the key findings uh, that you all talk about is, you know, just because a neighborhood has good outcomes for one racial group doesn't mean that it has equally good outcomes for other racial groups, right? I mean, like earnings and incarceration rates can vary dramatically for white, black, and Hispanic men, even when they're raised in the same neighborhoods. How mm-hmm. should we be thinking about that?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's, Think it's again you know data has a real role to play in driving some of these conversations and i think also that you know policy solutions can't be one size fit all you know and i think especially yeah. um i um, mean you, know, you know for young um black children especially for young black black men you know like like you like you mentioned I mean, we're seeing in almost most places across the the, the the country kind of low income and even middle middle income and and, and higher income black um boys are doing much worse than their white counterparts who grow up in the exact same neighborhood yeah. Yeah. and are making kind of you know you know and as children, their families were making like the exact same amount or even more money um, than the other families. so I think it really shows that you know there are again, it's just kind of like you know human capital neighborhood cohesion, you know there are there are things happening in our communities that we can't necessarily see that have a real impact on the kids growing up there and I think we really need to kind of dive into those issues and figure out like you know, really kind of how we can turn some of these trends around.
0: Shows you, you know, race is real, right? I mean different it is, it is these differences and outcomes that it, it can't be explained just by neighborhoods or parental income alone. Mm-hmm. Race is is real. You know, we know that neighborhoods matter a lot. And what we also know is that uh, when young children can move to a better neighborhood it can increase their income by you know several thousand dollars. There's all sorts of um, things that happen to them, and that's what um, the earlier research looked at um, mm-hmm. with with uh, Raj and Nathaniel and and John. Um, but they looked at uh, you know what happens when a low income kid whose family has a housing voucher mm-hmm. if they move from a really poor neighborhood to a you know a less poor mixed income neighborhood, what happens to them? What do we know?
1: Yeah, no, we see kind of direct benefit, benefits right we see for you know for those kids who had the opportunity to move and i think you know, an interesting part of the finding was some of the original research you know wasn't showing those impacts for the for the adults you know, who moved to these you know higher yeah. income neighborhoods but i think right. when you actually kind of went when the team here kind of re-ran some of those numbers and showing that oh like actually for the kids who moved and i think especially earlier for those kids who moved earlier you know we do see kind of fairly dramatic results and you really you know you see higher yeah. college college attendance rates. And you see kind of higher earnings in adulthood also. Um, And and you can can kind of see it directly correlate to, you know, where those kids moved and how early they moved.
0: Yeah, I think this is one of the uh, key insights of our Uh, campaign as we always talk about the multi-sector impacts. And this study was something that looked at basically an experimental housing voucher Mm -hmm. uh, that enabled these moves. And through an experimental housing voucher, you saw higher annual incomes, you saw higher lifetime earnings, you saw uh, those kids were more likely to attend college. You saw, I think that girls were less likely to become single mothers. And mm-hmm. so this is just, I think it speaks to the intersectionalities around these issues that like housing policy is school policy, it's mm-hmm. economic policy. And um, so yeah, it, very important. So so we have all of this this research. Um, and I wanted to talk about some of the the policy implications of this research, particularly around um, housing policy. Um, okay. So, so in terms of housing policy, right? If you take this research, it would certainly make sense that we need to have more uh, affordable housing options in neighborhoods of opportunity, and it makes sense to empower low-income families if with young children if they choose. Uh, to m- access those higher opportunity neighborhoods. maybe it's through things like housing vouchers. Um, and this is kind of the mobility to opportunity um, language that we talk about in the housing space. But mm-hmm. one of the I guess one of the classic debates in the housing world is the debate between mobility to opportunity, which basically means you know helping poor kids and their families access housing in better neighborhoods versus the question of revitalizing, poor neighborhoods right fixing the communities that poor people already live in Mm -hmm. um and so in terms of policy i mean how do we think about the balance between those two things between mobility to opportunity but also community revitalization
1: yes so i think from my perspective i think they should work hand in hand right so i think just kind of given our country's history and patterns of racial and socioeconomic um, segregation i think you know you know we should be kind of bare you know we should be bringing down barriers to access right i think you know like i think like all mm-hmm. families should have more access to the neighborhoods that they feel like are that, that are in their best interest to live in right so, yeah. so i think that's a very important i think just question of a, a autonomy and and freedom and i think living in a, an actual country that you know, like respects all different kinds of people living in their community. So I think you know that is an, a very important one. I think policy space, but I think also it's just an important conversation for us to be having. Um, but I think, and I think to 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 me, I think especially coming from a a mayor's office, I think the more exciting piece is that you know, like how do we how do we take the lessons. Um, you know, from some of these higher opportunity places, you know figure out what are the conditions that really do lead to success so that we can make every neighborhood a higher opportunity neighborhood in general., um, And I think kind of you yeah. know one piece that about the research that I find really interesting is that, you know oftentimes we, Kind of think about you know low-income neighborhoods as bad places and high-income right. places as good places. And I think you know yeah. when you're actually able to kind of you know not just look at the at, you know at the poverty rate or the median income, but actually you know track kids' long-term outcomes. I think it gives us a more nuanced view of what's really happening in these neighborhoods, right? And I think and, and I'm especially interested in kind of places that you know are relatively low income, you know, you know, you have a relatively high poverty share, but have yeah. unexpectedly good outcomes for low yes. income kids. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of what we're doing in some of our, our partner cities, what we're gonna do in Detroit and in Charlotte is, you know, let's actually pair our quantitative research and identifying these unexpected successful um, places, and then do that qualitative research with partners on the ground to really figure out, you know, what is going on in these places, that have unexpectedly good outcomes for low-income kids, and what are the lessons that we can learn and apply to other places?
0: Yeah, well said. I mean, what I think what I what I hear when you uh, speak so eloquently about it is it's it's a yes and, right? It's not an either or. Um, exactly. And and I feel like a lot of times it's framed as well an either or, but really it's uh, it's a yes and that yeah, of course we need affordable housing options in high opportunity areas, and we got to break down the barriers. Uh, whether that means, you know, barriers for voucher holders or whatever. But we also have to revitalize those persistently struggling neighborhoods. And, and we got to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, so, the um, you know, I think in, in my mind, it's, it's pretty clear that um, affordable housing should go into those opportunity areas. But to kind of further flesh out what we're talking about, I think a thornier question is w- under which conditions... Should we think about affordable housing in areas that are high poverty? Right, we have this history of, you know, putting affordable housing in areas that are already very poor and that you know further exacerbate segregation and concentrated poverty. So uh, clearly, we need more options in, in high opportunity areas. But I think a thorny question, particularly at the local level, is what on, uh, under which conditions should you be thinking about affordable housing being located in poor neighborhoods? Do you have any thoughts around that?
1: It's a really good question. And I think you know, it's really based on that local context. Right. And so I think, you know, one thing is that, you know, hopefully just having the data can kind of inform that um, context and those decisions. But, you know, an, an example that I can think of is that if there was a historically low income neighborhood with a vulnerable population, which, you know, potentially was 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 gentrifying. Right. And I think, you know, if a city sees, yeah. oh, wow, you know, we have this vulnerable population here, but we do see these demographic trends where, you know, there are you know, more wealthy residents who are who are moving in, you know, that might be a place where you build affordable housing to kind of like preserve access for those long term residents while you see neighborhood change happening. Um, and, yeah. so, and, so, and so I can imagine, you know, there are a lot of different examples of when that might make sense. But I think it's all based on that local context the local circ- and the local circumstances.
0: Yeah. And making sure that the policies are nuanced enough to allow for those different scenarios. Like, um, you know, when I was doing this work in Dallas, we, you know, Dallas has a a very long history of, you know, putting low income housing tax credits in areas that are uh, already deeply segregated. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of wrestling with what should this policy look like? And I think it was obvious that affordable housing should be a priority in areas where it hasn't been located before, basically the high opportunity areas. Mm -hmm. But But I think then we landed on exactly what you talked about. Well, there have to be scenarios where it makes sense in areas that might be higher poverty. And one of them was exactly what you said, which is a gentrifying neighborhood, right? It might not be a high opportunity area now, but it's certainly on the fast track, right? It's Mm -hmm. moving in that trajectory. Uh, Wealthier people are moving in. Um, uh, Lower income people are at risk of displacement. and So maybe you would put in affordable housing as sort of a preventative measure, right, to lock in affordability, in a neighborhood that's changing. There's also uh, you know another thing that we were thinking about was in a, a neighborhood that's uh, maybe not gentrifying, that still remains in uh, very, very deep poverty and there's no sort of gentrification on the horizon. Uh, there's models uh, sort of like the, the purpose-built community mm-hmm. model where housing is a piece of a holistic revitalization plan, right? It's not exactly. just about putting housing there. It's that housing is going to be done in conjunction with school improvements and improvements to health and wellness. And so it's done. You're not just plopping down housing. You're you're putting together a holistic plan based on the neighborhood conditions. And I think that's kind of what you're what you're talking about.
1: Exactly, and I think that's a really important point. Is that you know? I mean, part of part of I think your question is that you know, you know, we're not just. I think. Building housing and affordable housing for housing's sake, right? Like you know, we are yes. we are building it because I think we assume that it is something necessary for someone to have a stable, productive life. And I think you know that's what's I think also useful. I think you know there are other avenues of research here to really think about you know what are the kind of housing interventions, developments, and what might be the supportive services that that, that we that we need to truly really drive those long term outcomes. You know, you know, so that we're not just building affordable housing because we have a grant to do it, but we're about we're building yes. it because, and in a way that is going to create good long-term outcomes for those folks who we care about most.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We talk about the, the all of this, of course, requires data-driven decisions, as you've talked about, but <laughs> I wanted to then talk about this new opportunity atlas uh, that you all have put together and you recently rolled out. And Boy, you know, talk about nuanced data. Um, this is unprecedented neighborhood-level data that we've never really had before uh, um, across the country. And so there's an interactive map that you all have put together. You can access it through, through the, uh, your website. But basically, users can search any neighborhood in the country, and you can see where kids have the best chance of climbing the income ladder as adults uh, I remember when it was released, I, I, I just basically stopped what I was doing and spent like the next five hours just <laughs> playing with the tool. So this is why I said earlier that I think this is some of the coolest stuff going on in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about this Opportunity Atlas. Um, what, what is it and and, and, uh, and and what should users be doing with it?
1: Yeah, no, um, you know, it's 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 really central to to our mission, right? So kind of, you know, you know, we're trying to use big data to inform policy and to support policymakers but also the general public about these um issues. So I think, you know, the opportunity atlas is almost kind of the visual representation of the research that that we have been doing for the past 10 years. Yeah. And yeah. and what it is, I mean, basically it's, you know, we were able to to follow using kind of like federal tax and census bureau data basically follow the lives of 20 million kids. And these basically kids yeah. kind of born between the late 70s and the mid 80s and kind of track mm-hmm. their, their outcomes from early childhood, from birth until they're, they're adults, right? And, and like really looking at, you know, what are their long-term outcomes, right? What are their adult um, income earnings? And then actually looking at that based on factors like race, gender, you know, household yeah. income when they were kids and and of course, those neighborhoods, those exact census tracks, where they grew up. So, kind of really being able to, I think, for the first time, kind of better understand the impact of place and these different factors on those long-term outcomes. And I think similarly, kind of along with um, income, we're able to also look at things like incarceration and teen pregnancy, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. so not just looking at you know where you know where people were arrested, but you know, going back to the root of the core issue, right? So, really being able to, to track based on where a kid grew up and if they're low income, if they're black, if they're hispanic, if they're a man or a a, a woman, you know, what was yeah. the chance that they were incarcerated. So again kind of, you know, looking yeah. at the root, the neighborhood level root of a lot of these issues.
0: Yeah, and it seems like for based on what I've read the the key linkage was you, you, you there was access to census and tax data which allowed you to link the kid with their parents. And that exactly. told you where they actually grew up. And so it was the access to that census and tax data that really enabled this to happen. So um, I kind of alluded to it a little bit before, but, but how is this different than earlier efforts? Is it just sort of the the nuance of the data? Uh, what makes this different than, than um, perhaps what was done even just a, a few years earlier?
1: Yeah, yeah, so, so some of our original research was kind of looking at outcomes at the metropolitan region level, right? So being able to to yeah. compare Metro Charlotte to Metro D- Detroit to a place like Seattle, um, and yeah. so yeah, and so and so now what we're able to is really kind of dive deep again to every census tract in in the country and kind of you know look at because I think one one of the interesting findings is that you know you do see a lot of disparity across the country, right? You know we're seeing relatively low outcomes in 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 the Southeast. <clears throat> And like extremely high outcomes in kind of the upper Midwest. Um and yeah. so I, you, know, I, you know, I think that's that's an interesting finding, right? But you know, when I'm working with partners in in um Charlotte, you know, it's probably not super helpful if I tell them, you know, to be more like Dubuque Iowa, right? You know, that's right. not gonna be right. a very easy thing to implement. Yeah. Um but you know, what what we do see is that when you dive into, you know, honestly every community across the, the country, you know, you see the same disparities within the metro area that you see across the entire country. Um and yeah. I think kind of you know that just I think um, puts things in perspective about kind of patterns of opportunity in our country. But I think yeah. that then becomes much more relevant to like to actually creating kind of precision policy, right? When you can actually see differences in neighborhoods a mile away, rather than kind of you know looking toward you know looking across the country, right. you know, for examples, what might be possible.
0: Yeah, and this this nuance, right? Instead of looking at the county, you can actually go almost almost street by street and block yeah. by block and see the differences. This changes the game, I think, for policymakers. So if you could talk to us a little bit about like if you're a policymaker, how does this opportunity at atlas kinda change the game for you?
1: Yeah, no, I think, you know, when I when I when I put my kind of, you know, senior advisor hat back on in yeah. the mayor's office, right? You know, so we were working on, you know, neighborhood revitalization efforts, right? You know, kind of figuring out how do you physically change these these places. And I think you know, actually now being able to think about the impact of that place on kids' outcomes, you know, is real. Is really intriguing, right? I think it's something that, you know, like I wish I had when I was, you know, working in the mayor's office. Now, but I'm lucky to actually, you know, bring that as a resource, you know, to Detroit and to cities across the the um country. You know, I do think that, you know, one thing that I'm most excited about is kind of pairing this big data that, you know, you know, due to its grandness, you know, really gets to kind of like granular levels. Um, you know, you know, I really do think there will be something powerful about I think, one, changing the, the, the narrative kind of on the ground, again, kind of realizing that you know, like low income doesn't mean somewhere is a bad place, right? right. And I think yeah. kind of really finding that, that nuance and like, yeah, like, you know, what is actually happening? You know, what are these places doing that create good outcomes? And I think that, you know, by actually like highlighting those success stories, I think we can change that narrative. Plus, like, I think really kind of figure out, you know, what are those neighborhood conditions that create success? Because I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we look at different kind of you know, factors. We're looking at poverty. We're looking at demographic rates that are very surface level. And I think, you know, when we mm-hmm. can look at look at look at outcomes, it helps us then say, hey, like they're unobservable things that are really driving what's what's happening. And I think getting to dive into those and be precise about those, I think, is going to yield a lot of really interesting, impactful information.
0: Yeah, and it can be. I mean, this data that that you all have can be paired with kind of. Current local indicators, right? I mean, this data is the trajectory of kids who were born in the late seventies to mid eighties. Um, it seems like it could be paired with kind of current real time information that is collected at the at the local levels as well, and that really gives it an even more nuanced lens to this. Is that something that you all have talked about?
1: Exactly, that's something that I think we're really interested in, right? I think you know the data we have. We think is pretty exciting, but I think it can become yeah. exponentially more interesting when you actually pair it with, you know, not just local insights and qualitative work, but when you actually link it with local administrative data. And I think of something that, you know, we're working on, and I think, you know, if there are folks, if there are folks listening who are interested, they should definitely reach out is that, you know, you know, if we're able to actually kind of, you know, Link our data with local data. You know, being able to really kind of track opportunity. You know, not just precisely by geography, not just by you know by by race mm-hmm. and gender. You know, but actually looking at like, different inflection points along a child's life and kind of really figuring out. You know, what yeah. are those indicators that are most predictive of success? And I think that could be a very powerful way to kind of align resources in communities and thinking that you know like you know perhaps you know this um you know this this third grade test score. It's somewhat predictive, but actually there is there is maybe some like sixth grade social emotional learning test that that, that that is actually kind of really indicative right. of, you know, right. if the kid's going to be successful. And I think being able to kind of pinpoint those shorter indicators, those shorter proxies for success, I think could, again, be very powerful in how we think about interventions and in targeting our resources.
0: Yeah. You're, you've pointed to, again, kind of the, the multi-sector implications of this data. One is there's there's education implications mm-hmm. there's also housing policy implications there's economic policy implications it's so it it expands into so many different potential sectors i mean it you know when I think about what are the housing policy implications specifically i mean the list goes on and on right I mean it can help reveal whether voucher holders are segregated in areas offering little uh, upward mobility it could mm-hmm. help. Pinpoint the siting of new affordable housing developments. It could help identify those persistently struggling neighborhoods that require particular types of interventions. In- incredibly powerful potential. Um, I wanted to. I have. I have one more question for you, which I thought was really interesting, and it's about the opportunity bargain neighborhoods. Um, and so, on average, you know, I, and I think that this is you know largely conventional wisdom is that those neighborhoods that offer the most opportunity are also the most expensive to live in. And on average, the higher opportunity neighborhoods are in fact more expensive. The rents are higher, the mortgages are, are higher, but you all have labeled uh, a lot, actually not not just a handful, but there's, there's a good chunk of opportunity bargains, places that produce really solid outcomes, but they don't have extremely high rents. And uh, you all deem affordable neighborhoods as those that have, I think, two-bedroom median rents under fifteen hundred a month. So that's kind of the definition. But, but the fact that we these these places do exist, you've you've alluded to it earlier. But what are the lessons that we can take from these neighborhoods?
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that is potentially part of that narrative shift, right? I think you know the opportunity bargain concept is especially um salient when you're thinking about housing authorities right and kind of you know like, you know looking for those places where you know you might be able to get bang for for your buck if yeah, you're, yeah. you know, if you are searching for higher opportunity places for residents who are interested in potentially moving um but i think you know like we talked about earlier you know part of it is just kind of giving more nuance to what neighborhoods really are and and that you know high income and a place being expensive is not synonymous with it being good because i think there are a lot of higher income wealthy neighborhoods that are not necessarily good for the low-income kids who grow up there, right? I think, you know, they may have certain resources, but, you know, do they actually have those neighborhood networks, that neighborhood cohesion that actually make sure that the low-income kids also have access to those resources? And I think there are a lot of, like, working class and lower-income places that, you know, they might not, you know, kind of like, they might not on the surface level look like the quote unquote best places, but they might have just kind of that really strong neighborhood cohesion, that kind of pushes their kids their their kids forward. So I think, you know, you either call it, you know, like opportunity bargains or kind of like unexpected success stories, you know, like just like yeah. really really kind of thinking about more nuance and just really kind of understanding like, you know, what is it that that drives good outcomes for low-income kids, right? So I think, it, you know, being able to actually track outcomes helps us be a lot more thoughtful about that. I think one in terms of just kind of changing how we think about these neighborhoods, but also in thinking about what are the actual things that our kids need? What are the actual things that you know support them and set them up for success?
0: Yeah, and so basically, I, th- I think what I'm hearing is you know you're using quantitative data to identify those particular areas, the the opportunity bargain areas, and then it's the question of okay well let's figure out what what's what's the formula here why is it why is it working so well and then you really have to go in and do some some qualitative analysis as well is that kind of how you all are thinking about it
1: exactly um i mean i think you know the biggest message and i hope i don't get in trouble for this but i think you know big data <laughs> you know evidence based approach it's very Im- Im- important i think it's going to be very helpful but You know, it and we don't have all the answers, right? You know, like you know, you know, you know, you know, we're not just some kind of kind of group of folks at Harvard who think we know what's best for everyone else. I think, you know, we wanna we wanna help start a conversation and serve as a resource, right? You know, we you know, we want to do that, but also we just we just need to also. Um I think, you know, again, the data I think helps us kind of ask more precise questions and I think hopefully eventually answer those questions. But it's all based on working with folks on the ground you know who have both qualitative and quantitative insights and who are the ones kind of making making change you know we really want to serve as a resource to them and I think we want to actually figure out you know how we can be more helpful for the work they're already doing
0: very well said we'll we'll end on that um, you all are on a, a mission to revive the American dream and so per, there's perhaps no bolder ambition so I want to uh, thank you for the work that you're doing I want to thank you for the uh, the time that you've, you've spent with us I think our listeners will really find it um, fascinating. I am personally really excited to see where your research and, and the policy work uh, goes. Um, I, to our listeners, I would really urge you to check out uh, the website opportunityinsights.org. Um, you can spend hours and hours on the website just just exploring um, and it, it's really fascinating work. So David, thanks again is there anything else that you you'd, you'd want to leave our listeners with?
1: No, one, just some thank you for having me on. I think, you know, like yeah. I think I and the whole team were very passionate about um these issues in general. And I think, you know, we are actively looking for I think kind of other like minded folks, academics, researchers, policymakers who, you know, really wanna attack these issues and create and, and create change. And I think I think one thing too is just you know also our partners at the Census Bureau and at the federal government. I think it, it really shows how, you know, these partnerships across academia across the policy space in government. I think when when we all come together to tackle these issues, we can be so much more impactful.
0: All right. Well, thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thank you.